He's definitely not making Tyson Reed happy. He is furious. Black Scooby was a snack. It's Black with a nugget. I've been here for five months now, sitting on commentary with Bloody Larry. I don't know when next I'm going to be in Australia. It's entirely possible the answer is never. But if this should happen again, we're going to do that. Like, we're going to make an afternoon yes. out of this. Yep. Yes. If I'm meant to wear pajamas or whatever the uniform is, I'm going to wear the jammies. I want to go into that subculture as hard as you can possibly. <laughs> yeah, There's nothing to wait for, like, after the show tonight. Like, yeah, I mean, everything you're already getting it wrong if you're waiting so. <laughs> up this and the weirder the slang gets the more i'm going to enjoy oh, it there's, uh, there's a lot of slang get, we're gonna practice until you get here next time <laughs> <laughs> we come back and we're just we're all of a sudden we're into it <laughs> i'm still not really into this next time like what is it empty <laughs> <laughs> what are we doing tomorrow <laughs> the first question i thought of because in this room here in charlestown there's gonna be a lot of people who know you or excited to see you but I was with people last night in Newcastle, and they didn't have any. I said, "Oh, I'm meeting Mike Quackenbush tomorrow." And they're like, "Who is that?" You know, I was like, "Sure." So, who are you? Who is Mike Quackenbush? Uh, a skinny white guy, middle-aged. Um, Professional lawn bowler. <laughs> <laughs> Aspiring. Oh, throw me in, coach. I'm ready. Um, so. I've been in pro wrestling now for more than 25 years. I wrapped my 25th year up in May, and. It's certainly true that I don't have like a international notoriety. Am I known in very small circles? Sure. Am I a household name like the biggest people in professional wrestling? Absolutely not. There are probably far more people who would identify as wrestling fans who've never heard my name than there are the opposite. So even though I have a very unique body of work, uh, I founded Chikara, the training facility, the Wrestle Factory. Some of my most famous trainees include Cesaro, Drew Gulak, I've trained Alistair Black, and part I trained Ruby Riot. Uh, sometimes I get recruited down to the Performance Center for the WWE to help whatever they need. They want me to help work on their characters. They want me to train up Alexa Bliss for her return to the ring, whatever they ask me to do. I've made a couple thousand podcasts. I've written a couple hundred published articles. I've written eight books. Um, trained hundreds of people, gone all over the planet. Wrestled all of my heroes except for Owen Hart. Sometimes I'm called on as an ambassador for my art form when people want me to persuade a bunch of naysayers that pro wrestling is deserving of being considered something other than absolute folly. So there are some circles in which I'm well known, but they're probably outnumbered dramatically by the circles in which I am unknown. It was not by design. The, the last three of my biggest projects, my book, Seven Keys to Becoming a Better Performer, the podcast, Kayfabe 2.0, and my new YouTube series, Till We Make It, all kind of come from the same place. Um... One of the main thoughts behind it is this. There's an old school traditionalist point of view in professional wrestling that feels like we must carefully safeguard the secrets around the art form. And in an age of Wikipedia, that's laughable. Everything you could ever want to know about the inner workings of pro wrestling is at most three mouse clicks away ever. So to try and act as if our audience does not fully understand that what we make is performance art is foolish. Now that's not to say that while we're performing, we don't want to maintain the mystique of what we do. In the same way that in the middle of a movie, I don't want to see the boom mic drop into the shot and ruin my cinematic experience. I paid for that experience. That's what I want. I wouldn't give you my money otherwise. 
the same is true of our customers in professional wrestling. But I think that the old school and very dangerous tenets that we took from carnies back at the turn of the prior century, the idea that our customers are marks, that as an ideology is really dangerous. And I think the people that are stuck with these outdated ideals about what we make, they're beholden to that. And that just doesn't apply to modern performance. When we just talk about it plainly, as modern performance, I think a number of things happen. Number one, the people that are just fans of ours or intrigued by the art form will walk away with a greater appreciation for how difficult it really is. By masquerading and pretending to be something that we're not, we're actually hiding how challenging it is. It's a very demanding art form. The other thing I've liked discovering about it is all those points of intersection with other pursuits, professional pursuits, uh, anything that you might make as an artist. You're a singer, you're a musician, you're a comedian, any type of performance that you might do. There is that shared skill set. And Kayfabe 2.0 and the related projects, I think, have shown a light on that. How malleable the performance skill set is. It isn't just wrestling. It applies to your podcast. It applies to the next public oration you give. It might apply to the next job interview that you go to. Discovering those point of intersection were never the design, but it's been a happy coincidence. Uh, so you've been out here this week teaching classes and stuff, and I think it was about two years maybe? Yep, just one? about. Yeah. Do you, have you seen like a change since you've been out here with the scene and like the schools and how people are coming through now? Like, do you think it's grown since you... It's absolutely grown. Um, I was making this remark as I concluded my training last night down at PWA in Sydney. And across three days, I'd done nearly 27 full hours of classes. So it was a very aggressive schedule. And one thing that really stood out to me was from two years ago to where those kids are now is like night and day. Uh, Part of that speaks to their work ethic. A lot of it has to speak to the trainers down there, Madison Eagles, Robbie Eagles, Mick Moretti, etc. The fabulous job that they're doing down there. And also that, you know, wrestling's always kind of had three chief epicenters on the globe, Mexico, the United States, and Japan. But in recent years, and I think that some of it's on the heels of the ubiquity of the internet, you started to see these other hotbeds emerge. The UK definitely had their time at the dance in the last decade. And one of the reasons I'm always excited to come back here And the flip side is why I'm always happy to feature these Australians at home at my company, Chikara, is because Australia is about to become the next one. Uh, So it's very exciting to be part of that scene as it's leaving its nascent stage and about to really catch fire. Is there anything particularly you look for 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 teams to compete in the King of Trios or people that you'll invite to the, the tournament? Well, there's a variety of criteria that we go through. Some of the teams that, or the talent that we bring in, they're there for a very specific reason. We know we need to grab a casual fan. They've got to help us sell tickets to that type of audience. You know, there's all, all a variety of criteria. But every year I'm always looking for that group that is just about to break so that we have a chance to present them to the world just before it happens. And consistently, I think that's been a great marker for King of Trios. Um, you will see an act there, and within the next year, they're going to be the talk of the industry. And I, I, looking at what the complete lineup looks like for this year, I think that's going to be the case again. So I'm glad when we're always at the forefront of that, rather than chasing behind somebody who got hot six months ago that nobody can get a date on anymore. Um, I like for us to be kind of blazing a path, and also giving like a stamp of endorsement, saying, hey, I get that maybe a lot of you haven't heard of these people yet, but you better start paying attention now. 
I was listening to your podcast, Kayfabe 2.0, uh, yesterday. I think it was the episode called The Measuring Stick, about mm. how you should measure only against yourself and not others, which is a good message. And um, My question would be, do you look back on your career and do you ever have any sort of regrets or anything that you think, like you wish you had gone to like the WWE or anything bigger, or are you very happy with where you kind of ended up in the indie scene? That, that's, a, that's a good question. I never aspired to go to the WWE. And I don't think it was until I began coaching and consulting for them that I realized how entirely attainable that would have been. It seemed utterly impossible. And so for that reason, I just never thought about it. Um, when I look at the body type that they tend to hire, and then I have a, a mirror at my apartment, uh, and I do the comparison, I think, well, cosmetically, I'm not who they hire. I don't have the type of telegenic appearance they're looking for. Um, I don't doubt, though, now having been part of their system, if I had wanted that for myself, and I'd started to chase it at a younger age, it might have been quite attainable. Um, I'm delighted to see the change in their whole system, and I've played a very small role in it, but it's been very interesting. The times that they call on me and bring me down there and sort of aim me like a, a weapon, they're like, here's a problem area, go to work, do your thing, make it better. Well, that's all very validating. Do I have some regrets? Sure. I wish I had been less of a pig-headed young man when I was a pig-headed young man. Um, I wish I'd been more appreciative of a lot of the things that came my way instead of thinking, well, this is now owed to me. And I don't think it was until I'd shattered my leg back in April of 2013, and I went through a period of about three years where I couldn't have performed if I wanted to. Uh, sometimes I couldn't walk downstairs on my own. Uh, on the heels of that, it gave me a perspective about what I make and why I do it. And I realized that nobody's really owed anything at all. Everything you get is a gift. Part of that was really instilled in me because during this off period, not that I wasn't involved in wrestling, but I wasn't performing, to fill that, to scratch that itch, I took up improvisational comedy. And I took hundreds and hundreds of hours of workshops in Philadelphia. And uh, the guy who taught me the most about improv goes by the name of Mr. Milkshake. And it really wasn't until he had kind of shown me a whole nother perspective on performance that I felt like I just grew up as a professional wrestler. I had to go and do some other thing to acquire the outside perspective I needed. And so, of course, in hindsight, certain regrets, you know. I wish I'd taken better opportunities here. I wish I would have applied myself harder there. I wish instead of burning that bridge, I had done a better job networking. I should have made more friends instead of foes at that juncture in my career. Sure. But arriving at where I'm at now into my 26th year, I think for the very first time, I have the confidence to say, but I had to do all of that. I don't get where I, I am now. I'm not able to turn around and be the teacher and the mentor and the coach that I am without having stepped on all those landmines all along the way. And I can do my very best to try and help those that want to listen to what I have to say to navigate the minefield. Like, please don't step on that landmine. It blew my foot off. You should not go through that. Knowing that probably out there there's the other pig-headed young man who's just like I was when I was 20 years old, and he's probably got to go step on that landmine just to learn the lesson. Excellent. Um, as you... Uh and you, you mentioned you had to go outside of your um, chosen art form to, to grow up a bit. With your knowledge of technical wrestling, did you have to, uh, do you utilize outside sources and things like that? So uh, me, I'm a jiu-jitsu guy, so I come from that sort of background, so it's always interesting to watch you work. Did you go 
through any sort of training like that to help you in your, te- in your technical ability, or is it all just naturally great at it? <laughs> no, I, and it's the result of years of hard work and kind of seeking out different teachers. I think part of being a, a good teacher is also knowing what it is to be a good student. And so at least once a year, I make it a personal goal of mine to find someone in the craft who is more knowledgeable about one aspect of it than I am and just to enjoy being a student again. You know, earlier this week on some days, I'm standing up in front of groups of 50 and 60 and 70 people and I'm meant to instruct them for three hours straight. And every decision that's going to be made in that three hour class is mine to make. And if you've ever had to teach, then I'm sure you can relate to how exhausting that can be. Uh, I wanna give them whatever it is I think they need I don't always get it right, but I've got to give them all of it and all of me. I can't hold any of it back. That makes me think of this, and I know it's not what you asked, but every once and again I, I see a comment here or there. People say, um, yeah, you know, he, he doesn't teach his students everything that he knows, and I, I take great umbrage with that. Uh, I, I give away every ounce of knowledge that I have. I will talk until I'm hoarse and the room has fallen asleep. It's quite the contrary. But... I do appreciate what it is to constantly go out there and find someone who knows even just one thing that I don't know. I want my utility belt to be overstuffed with everything. I'm never going to be content with the standard issue gas pellets and batarangs. I want every wacky thing I can possibly stuff into a pouch. And then I'm just going to find the points that connect it to other weird things that I know. So this thing that my lucha maestro Jorge Rivera taught me, well, I'm going to attach this to a thing Johnny Saint taught me in the back room of a metal club in Germany. And I'm going to walk out then, not with peanut butter nor with marmalade, but this amazing new sandwich you've never tasted before. And I love being able to just kind of grab from all these different weird bags I've amassed in my mental bank and start throwing things together. And what comes out is whatever that weird mess is you watch in the ring. <laughs> I remember when you were here two years ago, you gave a speech before a PWA show, and you made Bonza cry, which, mm. you know, that guy has no emotion. <laughs> you made him cry. Um, it, it, it was absolutely phenomenal. I was only uh, just getting back into wrestling when I think I'd only been back for about a month. Mm. And even I, I felt some, I had quite a bit of emotion from what, what you had said. And yeah, it just like everything you say in KFH 2.0, um, to anybody listening to us, I can suggest 100% listening to this, even if you're not a wrestler, just, just to hear this man talk. But um, is there, did you do any professional training for it? Or yeah, were you? you just find that you have this ability to just capture the world? Um, I certainly don't have any kind of training, but uh, when I was a kid, I had a, a speech impediment. So I took years and years of speech therapy to be able to speak correctly because no one could understand me. So until I was in third grade, I, I struggled with a speech impediment. And sometimes when I'm not my sharpest, like I'm jet-lagged, for example, or some other thing, some of it will trickle back in, the trouble that I have with S and T and H and R. So especially if I know I'm speaking to a group, I'm extremely dialed in to my pronunciation and diction in those moments um, because I know what it is to be a child that has to answer in front of the class and not even the teacher can make out what you're saying. So to an extent, everything you ever hear out of my voice is an affectation. It's something I had to learn so I could communicate clearly. Um, but as it relates to like, you know, the message that I try to convey to people, there was an era in wrestling, and I start in 94. And this era is maybe, as the Attitude Era is really booming in the late 90s into the early 00s. And it's overtaken with this like snotty sort of insincerity. And it's characterized by a couple guys who were very vocal about 
You know what? Like, if you really care about wrestling, you're an idiot. These are people, professionals, that do the thing that we all do, that sacrifice our bodies. We do the miles, we take the lumps, we bleed in the ring. Telling, yeah, if you're really into this, man, you're like an idiot. Don't you know this is all just a, a work and we're fleecing the dumb fans out of their money? And if, if you actually care about it, like, you're a mark too, you idiot. And there was this weird thing where, like, it was not cool to be proud of what you did. It was not cool to care. And then luckily, a lot of those people went away. And we've arrived at an era, I mean, as a planet, where we are, generally speaking, more emotionally mature and sensitive than we have been maybe ever before. This allowed me the freedom to be able to talk about, in front of large groups of people, what I feel about my craft and what I feel about our relationship to our audience and about the camaraderie I feel with others who do the same thing I do, some of whom I don't, I see them every other year, two years I go by before I'll see a bunch of these people again. And yet the minute I see them, we'll pick right up where we left off. We're bound together by this peculiar pursuit that we all love. Feeling the freedom to be able to articulate how that makes me feel, very honestly, I think has then allowed things like what you must have heard before that show in PWA two years ago, where I know I can let that loose in the room and a lot of other people will feel it too. And there's nothing weird about it, that we're all just going to be together in that moment. And it might feel very raw and it, it manifests in strange ways, right? It, it makes some people's eyes water, including my own, right? You'll hear my voice go up an octave when it really starts to hit me. But I know that I'm in a place where I can let that out because everyone that's within the sound of my voice feels exactly the way I do. For performers, wrestlers, musicians, anyone listening to this, if you could give them one bit of advice to help with their career and pursue their dreams, what would you give them? It's a broad question, but... Yeah, that's a tough one. That's a day at the long ball question. <laughs> that, that can be for the long ball special. <laughs> um, there's a moment right before I graduate high school. The day is May 20th, 1994. It's two weeks before my graduation. Halfway through that day, I knew what I was going to do for the rest of my life. I was going to be a professional wrestler. And I also felt like if I ended up being anything other than that, that I would be a failure. That some version of me, maybe the 43-year-old version of me, would have to answer one day to the 18-year-old version of me in some cosmic reckoning. And uh, one would not be very pleased with what the other did. And there was a never-ending tide of people who tried to persuade me that this was the very dumbest thing you could do. Uh, my parents most ferociously tried to dissuade me from doing this. They might have even bribed the high school guidance counselor, Becky Kage, of the tall stack of gray Marge Simpson-like hair, who called me into her office. And there was like a form that we all used to fill out, right? Where do you think you're going to go to university? And what might you major in when you're there? And what do you think you'll be doing five years from now? And, you know, those types of questions. Because they're about to give you their expert advice on what you're going to do for the rest of your life. And I remember I had filled mine out, right, and it's my turn to go in for the meeting. And, of course, I've proudly written I'm going to be a professional wrestler, and I slide that across. And I'll never forget as long as I live, watching her sit back reading these answers and slowly folding her arms and starting to shake her head. And she said, Mike, that's not a thing. 
It wasn't too many years later, when this was still a relevant metric. Pro Wrestling Illustrated once a year would issue a countdown of the 500 top professional wrestlers. And I know because I worked for the company for 10 years how entirely arbitrary that listing is. It really has to do with how many photos go on each page and what size yours is. That's what <laughs> determines your number if you're anything other than number one. But I remember the first year that that magazine came out and there I was counted among the 500 best or so I thought. And I remember sticking a paper clip in that with a handwritten note, and luckily for me, Becky Keg lived at the exact same address those days that she did when I was a high school student, and made sure to mail one off to her. Whether she got it or not, I don't know. The piece of advice, I suppose, that comes from this overly long, sidetracking story is, there might be an unrelenting tide that wants to stop you from doing the thing that your heart tells you you must, and you just gotta go chase it. In 25-plus years, thousands of matches all over the planet, my parents have watched me wrestle twice. In the times it's ever come up over a holiday dinner, the embarrassment that's etched on both of those faces when any of my cousins dare to ask if I'm still doing professional wrestling is unmistakable to me. You may not have a support network behind you. There might not be one person in your corner between rounds to give you a squirt of water and to change that mouthpiece out before you come out swinging at the bell one more time again. And none of that is an excuse to give up the fight. You gotta get back up, answer the bell, and get your ass back in there. until you come across the bunning snag. Oh. <laughs> one at a time, lads, one at a time. You are, we are all due for an afternoon of this before we move on. Oh, yes, yes. please. <laughs> thank you for everything. Thank, thank you so much.